0: This is Season 6, Episode 3 of Beyond the Illusion. In today's episode, we have a conversation with Lizzie Martinez. Lizzie is a board-certified homeopath with a homeopathic practice in Austin, Texas. I have to be honest, before this episode, I really didn't know that much about homeopathy. So I'm glad we were able to talk to Lizzie because this is such an important and fascinating field especially given the current state of our healthcare system in the United States. I think we're all aware that there is an urgent and growing need for alternative forms of healthcare, particularly ones which take the whole person and their life circumstances into consideration when prescribing treatment. I'd like to share something with you from Lizzie's website which I think sums up nicely why she offers her services to the community through homeopathy. In homeopathy, I found a system of medicine whose very nature addresses the root cause of illness, can be mastered by a layperson for home care, and can be practiced by professionals at many levels to achieve profound healing. I saw the potential, healthcare independence. Now, let's go to that conversation with Lizzie Martinez, Tiana Roser, and myself, Tim Howe.
1: I think probably a lot of people have heard the word homeopathy, but a lot of us probably don't kind of have a strong or clear idea of what it is. How would you define homeopathy?
2: Homeopathy is a system of medicine. We call it natural medicine, perhaps. It is a complete system of medicine, meaning we have our own remedy provings clinical evidence, our own history. It's been around since the mid 1700s. It's also the most widely practiced form of alternative medicine in the world. It's integrated into the healthcare system of many, many countries around the world, most of Western Europe, Latin America. And there are millions and millions of homeopaths, people who practice homeopathy. Many of them are also MDs. And there are also people who, who are um, certified homeopaths, and and in many countries that's considered equivalent to an MD. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating large system of alternative medicine.
1: Can you explain like how, how is how it works? How is it different from allopathic Western medicine? Wow,
2: it's it's different in so many ways. You know, how it works is probably one of the most controversial subjects that I can even conjure in my mind, because it's the way that we would describe that it works. And you can go off into really into physics to very much describe it more concretely. But what I would say in a lay person's term is it works by stimulating the body's immune system to resolve symptoms on its own. So we consider it a stimulative form of medicine. It uses what's called the infinitesimal dose of a substance. And when that substance is ingested, it matches the pattern of the disease, of the symptoms that the individual is presenting. It will match that and it will elicit an immune response from the immune system. It'll elicit a healing response from the immune system.
0: So Lizzie, how did you personally find yourself you know working in homeopathy is it pronounced homeopathy it is pronounced homeopathy yes. okay yeah how did you find yourself you know involved in that kind of work and helping people with through that method
2: i was a 33 year old mother i had given birth to a child with special needs my second child and she had a lot of health issues right from the beginning and right after her birth i also started to have a lot of health issues particularly i had autoimmune thyroiditis, which is otherwise known as Hashimoto's disease. I had a goiter, quite a few other issues going on. So really just went in search of a way to help myself and my child. I had gone to see an endocrinologist at the time and she scanned, they did a scan, they did a biopsy on my thyroid and they basically handed me a prescription and said, you're going to take this for the rest of your life until your thyroid destroys itself, essentially through autoimmune disease. And I just, the, I just felt like there has to be some other option here. And I knew that a lot of, I had gone through a traumatic event. I knew that I had had suboptimal health in a lot of ways prior to the birth of my second child. And so I knew there was something else. And And it just happened that a friend, I mentioned this to a friend of mine and she said, have you ever heard of homeopathy? And that really just kind of started the journey. And I never looked back and I ended up going to see a homeopath. Uh, I resolved Hashimoto's. I don't have it. I've you know, haven't had it for over 15 years. And I went back to medical school, essentially five years of school and got my master's in homeopathic medicine.
1: Wow. That's like the classic kind of Chiron wounded healer. We experience something so that then through our journey, we're able to help someone else through that. So, so am I understanding correctly where, yeah, like you said, with maybe the traditional approach would be to give you some kind of pharmaceutical that you have to take for the rest of your life. But the the homeopathic method would, you would take it for a period of time, and then it it activates your immune response to that. And then it clears away. I guess it would depend on what the issue is. But is that kind of one of the differences of the way that it works?
2: Pretty much. I mean, I would, we would consider allopathy or Western medicine, suppressive medicine, meaning it, it looks at a symptom and it puts a medication in place to keep the symptom from expressing itself. And so it, it's not healing why the symptom is happening. It's simply suppressing it from expressing itself. What we think is, is that any symptom that's suppressed needs to be expressed. And so it will simply go into a different part of the body and make a different disease in a different place. So for us, suppressive medication, believe me, sometimes it's needed. Sometimes I mean antibiotics can be life-saving. And yet they're also completely overprescribed and it do damage, you know, inherently can damage people if they're overused. So allopathy, we would consider it suppressive. And then what happens is people end up making other symptoms, right? Because the symptom that they initially have is suppressed. And so then their body makes another symptom or the pharmaceutical makes a side effect. And then they're given yet another pharmaceutical. And then that starts to kind of chain, the origin of the disease not being addressed. So what homeopathy in its nature is a root cause medicine It addresses the root cause because it's working with the immune system. So the, in the immune system in Chinese medicine would be maybe called your qi in, in homeopathy. In 1700s, the man, the physician who discovered the homeopathic method called it the vital force, right? So it is our immune system essentially. And so by stimulating it, the body is so incredibly intelligent and it wants to heal itself. And so when you provide something so subtle, it actually pushes and allows the immune system to go in the direction that it wants to go anyways. So yes, it looks at the symptom pattern and matches the symptom pattern and almost lifts the disease or the symptom pattern from the individual, but their own body is doing it themselves. So it's the wisdom of the body.
1: There's so much that I love about what you just said, because this is something that I really appreciate about homeopathy. Just what you were saying, the core approach being very different. And as a hypnotherapist, I'm similar in my approach. Somebody came and they wanted to stop smoking. I wouldn't just give them a bunch of suggestions that cigarettes taste like garbage. Some people do this. But it doesn't get to the core issue because if the person is smoking because they have a lot of stress, like you said, it would be like a whack-a-mole effect where, okay, now cigarettes taste gross. So what happens? They start drinking more alcohol instead to deal with their stress or eating more junk food. It didn't really get to the core. I always want to know what's underneath that. Why you know why is this person smoking? So this is the way that we would go. We would try to like bring up What is it, you know, the part of them that smokes and try to understand how can we help this part? And really, I think that this is my personal opinion. This is one of the core dysfunctions in our society is that we're just we just want to like feel good and not face things. (laughs) And it's not really making things better, you know, and so a lot of times we have to go We have to face all the ugliness and understand what's there to be able to shift something to a better place. This also makes me think of when I did the holotropic breathwork workshop, and they have the same kind of approach. They are saying that, you know, you're doing this kind of special breathing, and it's meant to be playing music that's meant to be evocative to kind of bring things up within you. And they say, even if, if something comes up and it's just a little bit like maybe your shoulder hurts a little bit or you feel a little annoyed or whatever, amplify it, make it bigger. <laughs> and that's like the opposite. A lot of times, you know, if I get annoyed or something, I usually try to like tell myself like, oh, it's it's not a big deal. And I try to give other people a lot of grace, but then it's still there underneath. <laughs> it just might pop up later. So that's what happened in the holotropic breathwork is like, some people were chatting behind me and I was a little bit annoyed. And then I caught myself kind of just saying like, oh, that's their process. And then it was like, no, I'm going to let myself get more annoyed, more annoyed. And then finally, like, I just had this like huge, like, come up and I screamed it all out and then it all shifted. And it was, you know, how often, when do I ever do that? I don't really ever do that. But, you know, to me, it's that same kind of thing of, with this energy, how we're like suppressing things, like you said, and it'll just pop up a different way. Yeah. So thank you for that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, you know, I think that everybody's body produces symptoms in a different way. You know, I think the one One truth in disease is that everybody's going to have a different experience, right? And so this is why individualized medicine is so incredibly important because you and I could have the same diagnosis or we could experience even the same traumatic event and we're going to have absolutely different experiences. And so individualized medicine can really address what each person is experiencing. It's not a kind of a one size fits all this is the symptom. This is the diagnosis. And so here's the medicine for it. It's a more nuanced way to heal the body. So I think allopathy really excels at mechanical medicine. You know, if you your body needs to be put back together, literally, that's, the, that's what you need, right? But everything else is really the realm of, of complementary and alternative ancestral medicine, homeopathic, acupuncture, Chinese medicine. You know, we, that's where we excel.
1: I love this term that you said, I haven't heard that really. I mean, it makes sense. Individualized medicine. I had an experience of homeopathy, gosh, probably a decade ago. I was in this earlier when I first moved to Austin, I was in like a wellness practitioner networking group. And then we would kind of trade, you know, to kind of see what everybody else does so that, that we can share that with people if it's if it's relevant and so yeah I did a trade session with a homeopathist is that what homeopath, a person who, homeopath okay mm-hmm. homeopath and I didn't really at the time think there wasn't anything really obviously presenting itself but we we had agreed to do a trade but the intake, was so in-depth and detailed, and he asked me so many questions. And through this series of questions that he asked me, I began to realize, oh, yeah, there are some things really out of balance that I hadn't really realized until he asked me such an in-depth intake. And it was so, so I really, really appreciated that because a, a allopathic doctor, they're so busy, they don't spend very much time with you at all, even when you have this form that you fill out that just asks you a bunch of kind of routine questions. It was different. He was asking of things that were mental and, you know, the, the homeopath asked me things that were mental and emotional covering just not just physical symptoms. And so, yeah, I really, is that typical that there's a pretty in-depth intake questionnaire for homeopathy? Cause I really appreciated that.
2: Yeah. That's really, really common. And and the really neat thing about homeopathy is that you can treat the most basic symptoms with it and the most complex. So what I love about it is that a lay person can become a very good prescriber. If you learn the top 50, 60 remedies, you can become an excellent prescriber and do basically care for yourself and your entire family, essentially, because there's remedies that, you know, treat fevers, treat contusions, treat sore throats, left-sided, right-sided sore throats, treat, you know, tendinitis, burns. I mean, you can treat the most basic first aid and kind of, and then the next level up into the, you know, kind of viral disease process. And then, and that's an incredible talent, right? Just to be able to treat that level of disease. And then you get even deeper and then you go into where homeopaths. And that's when we take an animesis, right? The detailed case taking of the individual and where homeopathy really excels and where it's one of the most unique systems in the, on the planet is the strength of the mental emotional. So mental emotional symptoms are absolutely, you know, we believe, of course, the body is one, the mind and the body are one. And many, many of our symptoms are resolved when our mental, emotional symptoms are resolved. It's just, it's just that way. And so homeopathy, we have almost 300, we have 250 years of literature. We have whole computer systems that have all of our rubrics, all of our symptoms systematized into body, you know, body systems, essentially to, we have 5,000 remedies. So this is a way that we we look into the most accurate prescription and the mental emotional is very detailed for us, very detailed. The nuances of the mental experience, emotional experience, the emotional body, as well as dreams. We have a huge repertory of dreams that have been recorded since the 1700s. It's fascinating stuff. So when I take a case, I the method that I was taught, I was trained as a classical homeopath, which means we look at the case. We are typically looking for one remedy at a time. That's part of what classical homeopathy is. However, one of the ways that I was trained is to look a little bit deeper than that. And it was a, it was a method that was started about 30 years ago by several homeopaths at once on the planet Uh, They kind of started to look a little deeper. And this is why another reason why homeopathy is so fascinating. It's always evolving. It's a very fast evolving system of medicine. It's changing to meet where humans are now. And so our case taking changed around 30 years ago. And that's the method I was trained in. It's called the sensation method. And it just looks a little bit more deeply at the individual until we see, you know, we would consider homeopathy is considered energy medicine, And it's, it looks a little bit more deeply at the energetic signature of the individual. And that's how we get even more specific and more accurate. And that's when we see a lot of resolution in our cases. It's not uncommon for us to resolve very complex cases. You know, one of the things that we become known for and the the type of uh, clients that I attract, and I see people all over the world are people that come to me because their cases are very complex. Allopathy does not have answers for them. People cannot maybe even figure out what they have or what is actually happening. And we have so many different answers for things like that. And so, the, so yes, in answer to your question, very deep case-taking, very individualized. The mental-emotional is highly prized and highly examined in our medicine and our prescribing. Yeah, and, and the unconscious as well, as well as dreams and the importance of dreams as well as all the physicals right the physicals are incredibly important and the physicals are detailed right you don't just say oh i have a sore throat we say which side is on what does it feel like what's the sensation is it burning is it stinging is it is it raw does it extend to your ears is it better from drinking hot is it better from drinking cold you know these are all extremely important to us because it makes a more accurate prescription
0: Wow. I mean, it's so fascinating. I mean, that last answer you just gave, like you covered so much because I was going to ask like three different questions within that answer you had right there. So you covered the emotional and mental aspect of it, which, which I feel is like really sort of obvious, right? When you really think about like when you have an ailment, like, yes, there's a physical component, but there's also these other things going on in my life that are really affecting me. And, you know, that's contributing to my overall health. I love how, you know, homeopathy addresses that because I feel like, you know, that's a critical component. And also you talked about the evolution and I feel like that is also another key point because with today's medicine, it's almost like it's working against homeopathy, you know, modern medicine coming up with all these drugs and these side effects that they have, you know, now homeopathy has to, you know, kind of counterbalance that in some way, because, you know, those can be sometimes worse than the actual, you know, health problem that the person is trying to address them with. So you have, and I could see how this can get really complex, because even people I know are on five different medications for for something for all these different things they have going on and I'm like, wow, that's, you know, pretty crazy, but it's not that uncommon. And yeah. um and then this other thing where we have new diseases and new new issues coming up for people all the time now, like COVID, for example, is fairly new. And so, you know, you've gotta you deal with that too. So I wanna get into that a little bit actually. So how did that go? Like the whole pandemic and addressing COVID and what what was that like for you?
2: Thank you for asking that. Quickly, I want to just address something you said previously about multiple medications. And it's absolutely true that in my practice, I spend quite a bit of time undoing the effects of pharmaceuticals. And mechanical interventions, unnecessary mechanical interventions on people. That's a huge part of my practice. It's unfortunate, but it's true when we do very detailed case taking and we look in and many people can clearly tell you my life changed. I've never been well since XYZ. I took XYZ antibiotic or pharmaceutical. I've never been well. That's very clear to us. And we have really fascinating tools on how to resolve things like that. A, we're looking for a constitutional remedy. That's the remedy that is that individual, who they are, everything about them. That remedy is very important. It lifts the individual back into homeostasis. We also have remedies that are made from the substances themselves, meaning, i.e., a homeopathy made of a pharmaceutical. And we use that to clear the imprint that that pharmaceutical made on the individual. We have remedies that are nozodes, which are, and this will lead me into your next question about COVID. So if we have 5,000 remedies, majority are made from plants. There are another quite a few from the entire periodic table is represented plus multiple salts from the periodic table combinations of minerals and we have another subset that are all made from animal substances. All of these remedies, the majority of them are over 200 years old of literature, you know, going back over 200 years about the efficacy, case studies, clinical observations, entire books written about them. So we have a huge field of knowledge. It's, it's kind of mind-blowing once you d- jump into it. So yeah, so one of those subsystems of remedies are called nozodes. What nozodes are? Are potentized disease substances. And potentized disease substances have been around since in the mid 1700s. I believe the first one ever made was from tuberculosis. It's called tuberculinum. So, Hahnemann, Dr. Samuel Hahnemann, who's the founder of homeopathy, now he didn't invent homeopathy per se because homeopathy is based on the law of similars. And the law of similars has been around much longer than Hahnemann. He just recognized how it functioned and systematized it into a system of medicine. So he took a disease substance, which would be either sputum or the fluid of a pustule of a disease of a and he potentized it and made it into a remedy. That's tuberculinum since then. And we use nozodes to treat chronic disease. We also use them to treat acute diseases and we use them to prevent disease. How? By stimulating the body's natural immune system. So we call it immunological education. The first recorded use, we call it homeoprophylaxis, taking a disease substance, giving it to the individual. It produces an immunological response. The body recognizes this as a, as a healthy disease response. and Then the body has awareness, is in the body of how to resolve this disease, right? The body is aware because the immune system has experienced the disease. The first recorded instance of this was 1796. So we've been doing this for a very long time. So prior to COVID, we used nozodes for many things along with all our other thousands of remedies. One of those things that we used them for was homeoprophylaxis. People who were traveling uh, wanted to give themselves an immunological education to a specific pathogen. We would give the nozodes in specific potencies and that elicits a specific immune response and it creates a type of protection because there's a, the body has the awareness of disease. So when COVID came and yes, we have thousands of nozodes. There's every time there's a new pathogen, they make a new nozode, the pharmacy does. So we can choose from so many. It's an incredible. We have an incredible pharmacopoeia. So, when COVID came, they did the exact same thing we've always done. We have documentation in homeopathic medicine. This is our seventh recorded epidemic. Oh, excuse me. So we have seven recorded epidemics within homeopathic. Been treated by homeopaths with homeopathy recording the mortality rates, the outcomes, etc. We have all that literature. It's totally fascinating. Our history is really fascinating. What happened during the pandemic is the homeopaths globally came together as a global think tank, really, and we were able to access a lot of information sharing. We saw our cases come up across the world. They started to collect the data of all our resolved cases so that we could all be Prescribing similarly, right? Because diseases have patterns. So, Even though you and I are gonna present the disease differently, there's gonna be certain patterns that are similar. So when we look at patterns, we're gonna figure out which remedies are the most likely to resolve it. So that's what we did right from the beginning of the pandemic. We did exactly what we've always done as homeopaths and start to treat people and figure out what is the disease pattern here? and What's the best remedy? They call it the genus epidemicus. The genus epidemicus is the remedy that most matches the disease pattern. So right off the bat, We all found there's a lot of remedies that, that treat COVID quite successfully. So, and I'll say right now as a disclaimer, that we're allowed to say that we, I guide people in using homeopathic medicine to treat symptoms that are like COVID. That's, I, that's the way that the language that we're supposed to use. So that's from here on out. That's what I'm speaking of when I speak about the resolution of cases that present as covid our number one remedy that we've I've treated probably the majority of cases are used in the majority of cases is called Bryonia. You can buy it at any natural grocery store for $10. It's an incredible remedy. It matches the majority of my cases. It resolves a lot of cases. So there's a that's a the question you asked about COVID is it has many levels to it, right? So one level is acute treatment. That's not the only remedy. There's a lot of other remedies that we use, but I would say there's about 10 that we use very commonly. They're very common homeopathic remedies. They're not unusual remedies. You can buy them at the store. Those are the, but Bryonia ranks the highest as most. Right now I have, you know, I've probably 30 cases in the past three weeks and I'm just, Bryonia continues. Now, here's the other aspect of your, my answer would be nozodes. At the beginning of the pandemic, they potentized the sputum from the original strain of COVID and turned it into a nozode. So we do have the nozode. We have multiple nozodes and strains of multiple variants of COVID. We use those both to treat and both to give immunological education, homeoprophylaxis to people. So those are different ways that we've addressed COVID as as the homeopathic community. And the way that I educate people in treating themselves to know that they have the knowledge and the ability to resolve the illness themselves.
1: Wow. You said you use it both to treat and to provide immunological education, I think was the word you said. I was wondering, is it always after you get something or is it also preventative? Is that what immun I can't even say it, immunological education? Is that kind of preventative because we're introducing something to our body so that it, now it knows, or I, I would just kind of like to understand more what that is. Yes. It's introducing a disease substance to the
2: immune system so that the immune system recognizes it and then makes a safe immunological response. It's like stimulating. And you can go into more details. There's a great book that one of my wrote called uh, The Salute by Kate Birch. And she speaks more about what's actually happening, what T cells are being activated in the process of taking homeopathic nozode. But what we see as practitioners is that you might take a nozode, say for pertussis, pertussinum, and you might produce a little bit of a chill or get hot, right? And then what happens is then we tell people that's totally normal. It means your body needed to create this response in order to have a higher level of immunity to this substance. So we did this. So that's immunological education. It's the body's awareness of the disease substance so they can have a healthy response to the disease, essentially. One of the things I do in my practice quite a bit is teach people to know what a healthy disease process is. Because in our country we're hugely divorced from what disease, what healthy disease looks like diseases are actually, many of them are necessary for human development. They're necessary for our immune system to develop correctly. If we don't experience, I get many children in my practice that their parents say to me, oh, they're really healthy. They never get a fever. Like that's not actually healthy. You actually have to have a fever. Your body has to have a fever. Occasionally we have a very suppressed culture. We have a very suppressed immunity in our culture. So one of the things homeopathy does and one of the things I do is train people, A, to not be afraid of disease, to not be afraid for their body to get a fever, nor for their children to get a fever, to understand the role of a fever and why it's important for a body to have it. It actually brings us as humans to another. If we're healthy and we have it in a healthy way, it's going to actually clean us, cleanse us in a healthy way. Right. And as you see with little kids, many times they'll get in a child, common childhood illness, bust a high fever. And the next thing you know, they're like talking more. They have gone to a milestone, a developmental milestone. That's a very important process. If we, do, if we skip those processes, we have different issues. And that's what I see a lot in my practice. Cause I have a huge pediatric practice. So I really train people how to, follow the correct disease process and how, why that's important. And I've done this and we've done the same thing with home with the COVID is this is a specific disease process. And as each variant comes, we're experiencing together and how do we resolve as each variant comes, how do we resolve the symptoms and how do we keep the body healthy? So it has a healthy disease response.
1: Yeah. That's such important work because I think with COVID, there was such a fear factor. People, you know, got all of the hand sanitizing, everything, and all of just like, I think if people were to realize that it's okay sometimes to get sick and to have these methods to work through that and then have confidence that their body can have the immune response to then to work through something like that, then maybe a lot of the illogical fear response that we've seen could kind of soften because I think it's just building up so that people are, you know, the next thing and the next thing it's going to be, you know, I think we saw a lot of irrational behavior from fear around the pandemic that it has to shift if we're going to move forward with so many people on the planet and new things probably popping up over time?
2: Absolutely. I mean, you can just see it now. There, there's really talking about a new virus almost every couple of weeks There's something else, another virus. And so for us to be able to break ourselves out of the fear cycle, I mean, even prior to COVID, we were probably you know, arguably the country that is most locked in your culture. It's just part of our culture, you know, where there's multiple reasons why fear just ranks so high in our culture. We're so separated from our innate wisdom. We're so separated from our bodies. We're one of the only countries in the world that is allowed to advertise so heavily pharmaceuticals constantly. I mean, I think there's only two countries in the world, maybe. and We're one of them. It's just part of our culture to be afraid and, and it's very hard to step off of that train, you know, once it's going, cause most people are just kind of riding it. And so when COVID came along, it just slipped right into the, that same train of be so incredibly afraid. And so, you know, I really, really hope that when people start to look for answers that homeopathic medicine can give people a sense of empowerment a sense of peace, a sense of knowledge to to trust their bodies, to trust the wisdom of their body, to know that they have tools in front of them that that actually work and to slow the healing process down. Healing can take time. Chronic healing can take time. And, And it's, it's just, our culture is really on a different track from that. And I think right now people are looking for something else, but yet I'm, to have that experience with the pandemic because of the way our
0: culture already was. Yeah, absolutely. Really, it sounds like it's a complete paradigm shift. You know, you're you're describing this w- almost like a way of life, really, letting go of fears and embracing your your own ability to heal, your natural ability to heal, and your your natural I- innate desire to heal. Really, you know, I think a lot of people, especially in our country identify with their disease with their victimhood right so some people do not want to let go of their disease or because that's part of their identity and so they find that whatever the reason is maybe they get attention maybe they can start conversations easier with this you know illness or whatever affliction they have that day or that month I find that a big part of our culture. And I, I feel like it is what you're saying. Like we are a heavily suppressed culture. Yeah, I think it's like like what I was saying earlier. It's like a paradigm shift. You know, embracing homeopathy is embracing a, a different lifestyle, a different mindset. And that's, yeah, you know. Yeah, it really that, is. Yeah.
2: One of the things that I travel quite a bit to Mexico. And one of the things that was fascinating during the quarantine and the early, you know, early times of the pandemic was, a little fear there was there. It was very, I talk to a lot of people. I'm really gregarious. I talk to everybody and, and I would ask everybody, have you, you know, had COVID? What are you thinking? And have you had the symptoms? And, and most people say, yeah, I had it. Yeah. They, and they, Oh, what, what did you take? I would ask them, what did you take? Oh, I drank this tea that my grandmother always made for me. That's made out of boiled lemon peels with cinnamon in it. And I drank that with a bunch of lime. I drank that like six or eight glasses a day. Yeah, it was fine. So it was stark contrast to be there. You know, they're just much more in touch with the tools that have been in their family. You know, they're much more in touch with those things. They're outside. Most people, not in huge cities like Mexico City, but most people are outside all the time. So that's hugely different from us. And they have just a much bigger connection to their own ancestral wisdom, essentially, of how to heal oneself. You gargle, you gargle with salt, you take these things. It was always surprising to me what the different feeling when you went from one place to the
1: next. Speaking of travel to Mexico, I know you were kind of on a pilgrimage recently. Maybe we could segue a little bit into telling us about that journey, that story.
2: Well, that started, I've always traveled to Mexico with a lot of family there. So probably when the quarantine started in March of 20, so March of 20, I was about to leave for Mexico when they grounded the planes. And I was really upset because I had was so incredibly burned out from my work and very stressed and, you know, living like a lot of Americans where we are just in a constant push, right? We're pushing, striving, pushing, not resting. And, you know, that's the way I was functioning as well, over-functioning. And so I was really upset when they grounded the planes at because I wanted to have a break because I was going to go on vacation. But what happened instead was I really got a chance to rest during that time. And so I know that the quarantine was really hard for a lot of people in the world, people that were, you know, in very restrictive environments, people that were incredibly afraid, people that were with sick loved ones, small children. So I know that a lot of people for them, that they reflect on that as one of the hardest times in their lives for me. I had a very different experience. I was you know, fortunate in a lot of ways in my work. I could keep working. My kids are older, kind of self, self-navigating. And I was able to really rest. And so in that rest time, I felt a kind of liminal space open up, I would say, in Austin here. You know, I live in Austin. Things got really quiet. As you remember, the incredible stillness was something that I didn't remember in my body since I was a child. It was like my child self was remembering that this is the way that I used to feel because the world just stopped and slowed down. It was like that stillness. I really kept calling it a liminal space. It felt like something, another level of awareness opened up and I started to have a lot of dreams. So I started dreaming I had quite a few dreams about really specific places in Mexico. I had dreams about going to these different places of really, I mean, it's complicated, all the things that I was dreaming about, but it led me to go to these actual places over the past couple of years and to write about what I was experiencing. And it got me very interested. And one of the things that happened was during that quarantine time, I walked a lot around my neighborhood and I walked everywhere and I started to really become attracted to specific places in my environment. I live near Shoal Creek and I started to notice specific things and how I felt around different areas of the Creek. And then I started to dream about those places and I started to start to walk this one particular walk. And then I started to kind of research of that area And the more I walked this one area, which goes from a particular cemetery up on a hill down through the creek into this one bend in Shoal Creek where there's a spring, where there was a particular historical event, I started to have dreams about that particular area as well. And at first I approached it, it was, there's one area pretty dark and dense with trees. And I started to feel kind of, I was kind of scared to go in there. And then I wanted to figure out why am I so scared to be in this place? I started to keep going, going into this area and I would pick up trash and clean it up. And I kept walking this one particular, almost like a of wind, and as I, it, that area started to change, really. and now now it's interesting. it's been doing it for two and a half years. It looks completely different to me now. There's a lot of children that go and hang out there. Some kids built a fort. It became like a different kind of vibrant space. There's a lot of other people that walk through there now. I really felt like it was a significant place of power within our within Austin, with the spring, with this particular hill. And we know that in indigenous culture, the original the original Holy Trinity is mountain cave spring, mountain cave water, you know, in all indigenous cultures, that's the Holy Trinity. And so that exists here in this little area. And so I really started to feel really the kind of land awakening. And because it was so quiet, I was able to really see the animals coming back and feel what it was like to be at this during to live during this time to live and I could feel really the preciousness of this place and how it was just really they just plopped a seat in hospital right on top of this incredible spring and um and it's a, it, it's a holy place I mean people are there So I returned, I still go all the time to these places. And then that led to bigger, to how it was connected to bigger point throughout our part of um, here, Austin, down to central Texas, down through, down to Southern Mexico, the furthest I went was was Palenque. And then that opened up to a huge interest in lower Pecos rock art and particular mural called the White Shaman Mural. That is in, it's right outside of, outside of Del Rio. That's a very big power spot. There's a con rivers there, the Rio Grande, the Devil's River and the Nueces River. And there's all these incredible murals. And the White Shaman mural, it's something I had dreamt, dreamt of. And then I was seeing images from it. And then one of my neighbors actually walked by and mentioned it. And I was like, I know I need to go see this mural. So I drove myself out there and I went to go see it. And I have become fascinated with this mural and all the history, what it's describing. they think it's the oldest representation of uto Aztecan um, cognition that exists in North America. And it's, there's 72 anthropomorphs in this mural. It's representing multiple different stories of creation flood myth, flood myth, flood mythology, the creation of the sun, the birth of the sun. And that led me to study my own ancestry, where my family is from, and why I was always called back to this one town as a child. They were always take. my grandmother was fascinated with a town called Real de Catorce. When I was a child, she would take us there. And back then, in the seventies, it was abandoned. It was a ghost town. So I don't know why she was so interested in this place, because when we would go there in the 70s, there was nothing there. It was an abandoned silver mining town that had once been really opulent and incredible, now abandoned. And so I don't know why she was so fascinated with it. Now I think I have more of an idea. But what, of course, I learned from the mural is that the mountain that is represented in the mural of the White Shaman mural in the Lower Pecos rock art of of South Texas is the mountain of Huiricuta, the Cerro Camado, which is the holy sacred mountain of the Huichol Indians. And the Huichol are the the most contemporary living descendants of that history, which goes all the way back to Mayan culture. It's the same cosmovision. It's the same, the Uto-Aztecan belief system you know, that originated with Mayan culture. So, and then Nahua culture, etc. So I went back there because it was part of the, it was part of the dream. It was part of all these dreams that I, the series of dreams. So I went recently with a, a really good friend of mine and we did a pilgrimage where we walked. We did, we didn't do the Weechul pilgrimage, which happens in October, November. That's part of their sacred, their sacred pilgrimage. We did our own where we walked the site and we, there's a specific place, uh, you know, area that you follow a specific route that you follow. And then up at the top, when you reach the summit, that's where all the prayers are given. That's where, you know, the sacred and then all around the mountain is considered Wirikuta. That's their land, the sacred land. That's where peyote is grown. So we just really did and, and had an incredible experience, you know, and then, and then more dreams come from that. Right. So since I'm so interested in dreaming and I'm as a homeopath, as I said before, we use a lot of dreams in our prescribing, in our medicine. And so that's deepened my practice even more now is to really go explore deeply my own dream world and that and how it relates to, you know, what I feel like are specific ley lines that I was sent to follow or places of power on the earth and how following those and enacting how our dreams are guiding us how that really connects us with our purpose essentially so yeah i just got back from the, my about sixth trip
0: oh uh, wow that's yeah that's absolutely fascinating yeah my when you mentioned uh, real de catorce my my mother also she's from that area and so she she's d- also done the pilgrimage there's a lot of folklore about the area the mountain and the area and the lights that people see and the brujas they call them and it's a, it's a really interesting folklore. And then, you know, also this concept of of taking a pilgrimage period, but you doing this extended one that's kind of a larger area. Yeah, I feel like that's something that Americans especially have lost touch with is our roots in nature and our connection to everything on the planet. We see ourselves as rugged individuals, but that goes too far because it disconnects us from where we come from. So there's always that too, like lingering in the background of American society is this idea that I'm my own individual, you know, that reinforces that separateness.
2: Absolutely. I think, you know, what's fascinating about pilgrimage and what, you know, all of our ancestors practiced this, all of our ancestors practiced shamanism, all of our ancestors practiced sacred dance. It doesn't matter what we look like in this lifetime, what color we are. The world was kept in balance by the acknowledgement of solstice, equinoxes, different sunrise set, that rainy season, dry season. This was how the acknowledgement in the life that to walk the walk, to keep things in balance was how they lived. It's certainly true that we're incredibly out of balance on the planet and that we've lost that connection. And yet we can step right back out into it. It's still there right? It's still here. It wants us to do these things. It wants us, many people are being called back to this. Like this is a very strong desire in people to connect with, you know, essentially what our ancestors are doing and what would it look like if we honored and brought us back through, you know, they say pilgrimage is external, externalized mysticism, right? To actually
1: make those connections. It brings a sense of balance back. hmm yeah, I love about your journey as well that you had both that experience localized and back to, you know, from your ancestral line. Because I think a lot of times, yes, it's very romanticized. Like I'm gonna go to, you know, Spain and, and walk El Camino, but to also recognize, oh, I can walk out my door in my neighborhood and have that experience as well is really important too.
2: I so agree. And I, I feel I'm fascinated by the way the land looks. If you, you know, just kind of pull back and look at the land without the structures on it and around, you can actually see was there before us and what's still there. Right. And I really like it when, when you feel called to a certain place, you know, and ask yourself, why do I, why do I feel this way in this place? Right. This, you know, when, and it could be just a tree that's in the grocery store parking lot. Right. But you could say like, wow, I really feel something when I'm next to this tree or I really feel, you know, I've seen little dry litter ditches behind a strip mall and felt like wow this feels and then you can kind of pull back and look around and see well there's a little hill over there and a rise and it kind of went down this way and you're feeling something real you're feeling a connection to the land that's here around us that for thousands of years people walked and lived in and worshipped and it's still here. And so I think, yeah, absolutely. We can listening to ourselves when we feel called to certain places and it could be right there in your own neighborhood. And it's almost like our attention to it wakes it up even more. Our relationship Mm -hmm. with it even wakes it up
0: even more. Mm. Absolutely.
2: Can I share something that's kind of interesting?
0: Yeah, definitely. Please do.
2: Something that is kind of interesting in the mural, because I'm such a nerd about this mural in the, in the White Shaman mural, is one of the things that's depicted is the plant Datura. And so Datura, you've probably seen it around. It's very common. It's a beautiful plant. It's a night bloomer. It makes white bloom flowers at night. And it makes a little like a spherical seed pod that has spikes all over it. I think it's such a beautiful plant. It's a poisonous plant. And the really interesting thing is, is that we use it a lot in homeopathy. In homeopathic medicine, it's called stramonium, And we use it, it's been around like as long as homeopathy, right? 250 years. And it why is it in the White Chama mural? Why is it depicted in this mural, right? It's so fascinating. So it has a really long history in the Americas as a plant that was taken because it makes hallucinations. It creates a hallucinogenic effect. People can actually feel like they see evil spirits. So they use it a lot like Hikaru um, uh, Shaman, South America would take detura to have kind of wild hallucinogenic experience that was almost violent because you do see actual, you know, what evil, devil, demon, uh, and feel people feel best, right? That it, there's a possession. So it's in the mural because it's one of the, is because uh, it's a revered plant. It's a medicinal plant. And it's also, uh, it represents all entities and deities of the night because it's a night bloomer. For us, we use it, it's an encephalitic. For us, it's an encephalitic remedy. It treats encephalitis. So brain inflammation, what is a result of brain inflammation? Well, hallucinatory experiences, right? When people have really high fevers, they can hallucinate. And also people that come to me with mental emotional illnesses that might have delusional experiences where they feel demonic, there's demonic presences, et cetera. So we were already using it. What's so interesting is we use it a lot to treat the symptoms of COVID. And so I've seen quite a bit in treating symptoms of COVID or guiding people to use homeopathy to treat the symptoms of COVID. People have their own personal COVID that they go through. So many people go through the symptoms they get the sore throat, the headache, hot, they get chills, et cetera. And then other people really go through a personal, their personal experience with this disease. And one of the most fascinating sides of the virus is that it has a very strong mental emotional component. So this virus is not, like, it's not unlike other viruses. There is a mental emotional component and it came out when they did the proving of the nozode. So they took the potentized disease substance, the nozode made it approving and approving is our standard for the efficacy of all remedies. It's the opposite of a pharmaceutical proving where they give a substance to people that have a disease or symptom. We give the very minute dose to people who are healthy and we see what response it elicits. And then those responses are recorded and that becomes the profile of the substance. They've been doing that for, you know, 200 years. So again with COVID with the nozo that was done and the mental emotionals that came out were very clear. And I see them when I treat the when I help people with their personal journey through this disease. And many of those symptoms are mental emotional, their despair for the world, very dark thoughts. There's thoughts of evil that there is an evil possession. There's lots of darkness, hopelessness. Many people that feel, you know, mass dreams of mass annihilation, the dreams are really strong and common. So when you hear multiple people have exactly the same dream, these are representations of the personal representation of the dream of the disease, I'm sorry. And so what's interesting about homeopathy and what we found as we get really individualized in treating symptoms of COVID is that it is like so many other viruses. It is a portal disease disease. That takes us to some other level, I feel like to another level of integration and awareness, because when people pass through their own darkness and allow themselves to have the experience of the disease supported in a healthy way, they can actually have had clients talk about this wrestle between good and evil, and then essentially their fever breaks And the next day they feel like they were allowed to let something go and released. And so I really do feel like part of what we're experiencing now as people on this planet, as we go through this disease process is what we see with children. When we go through and we mature as we go through and have a healthy disease, if we allow ourselves to learn from the disease process, we can actually become more integrated people because it is essentially upgrading our DNA. It is coming into our body. There is no way around it. It will come in and it will. And if we integrate it, people actually go through their own kind of personal, I call it your own personal COVID, where they go through their own personal darkness and can come out on the other side
1: that's such an empowering perspective, totally opposite from what we're being fed, you know, over the last couple of years. I hope that that perspective will be more broadly, widely shared and understood. Thank you.
2: Yeah. I, and I feel like, you know, I'm endlessly fascinated with how things are connected. And so the fact that Stramonium is in this mural it's a remedy that we already use it's a remedy it's a huge remedy that we use when there's these delusions and when we use it for covid i think it's just all you know everything everything is connected and just shows you the our our wisdom is there it's always been there right our wisdom our ancient wisdom is there it's present with us this time as well
0: yeah Uh, that that is fascinating i um I have to agree with you 100% on that, you know, the the whole COVID thing. Even my own experience with it was, uh, I don't even know if I had it for sure, but my wife had tested and I had the same symptoms, so I'm pretty positive that I did have it. And, um, yeah, I, I even told my friend, you know, he's, he asked me what it was like, and I said, you know, it wasn't too bad physically, but I did feel that there was this, like, em- emotional and mental component to it, like I had never experienced with anything else. Even I've had the flu and I felt like I was going to die, but I didn't have that emotional and mental component where it was like, yeah, it was exactly like you're describing. It was like this fear and this this overwhelm. This yeah, there was a lot to it, and it was very personal. But but it was unique in in its characteristics. I didn't I didn't ever experience that before. So I'm glad that you're saying that because I kind of <laughs> because I don't go around telling people that you know because well uh, you
1: just told the whole world no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. But yeah, no, I, I told him because he, he asked and I felt, you know, comfortable, but you know, I feel comfortable saying it here too, that you know, it is it is different in that way. But I
2: think I think it's so important for you to, for us to share those stories because people feel right now really isolated and and I write in my I try to communicate with my clients and say, if you know people who feel like there's darkness, this could be that they still have COVID it's part of COVID. And, and, and I want people to know that because it's part of the disease process. And what happens when we get stuck in the disease process, we don't come out the other side, right? People are just stuck in it. And so there's a lot of people walking around feeling this particular feeling. And so when we share stories like yours, Tim, like you just said, it's, I think it allows people to acknowledge that it what like you said, it was your own personal thing that you went through. That's really important. It gives us a chance to examine a lot of those things. And then for people to recognize that it's that it, it's part of the disease process and it's actually it can be healthy.
1: Yeah. So we don't have to be so afraid of it and we don't have to suppress it and embrace the process. And that will really strengthen us moving forward if we learn this approach that you're sharing, whether we have something physical, mental, emotional, you know, just to begin embracing and facing things and recognize how they are transforming us. And we're growing through them. It will be really a big, like Tim said, a big paradigm shift.
2: Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, if we're all going through the same experience in our own individualized way and the biggest, deepest questions, when people go into that dark, tunnel is, do I, what do I want to align myself with? What is my truth? What am I going to choose here? Am I going to choose, you know, fear or am I going to choose love and connection? Or Are we going to continue to divide ourselves through from fear or, and think that some other other people, right? So, I mean, you know, what's the biggest thing that's happening right now that we see is this level of otherization, you know, that's mm-hmm. happening That seems like it's deepening, and yet part of the portal experience that I see in COVID is that people really burn that off in some particular way. It's like a darkness that they're allowed to be free from, and I've just seen it over and over again in multiple cases that it feels really clear. People are allowed to just let go of that whatever thing that they were holding onto that kept them feeling separate and afraid of some other group of people because they were because they're different or they believe something completely different and they were perceived as being evil.
1: Particularly yeah, particularly now at this point in the pandemic because you know that otherization that you're talking about, you know, was around what medical health choices we made but now at this point doesn't matter people whatever medical or health choice everybody's getting it basically doesn't matter what you chose and so it does kind of clear that away and stop you know looking at everybody as separate and realizing like like you said we're all going through this mm-hmm.
2: yeah we're all we
1: all have to get it and we're all going to you know it's going to change our dna one of the things like i always No, i haven't always anyway recently i've been more drawn that i wanted to go to india you know spiritually but i've kind of always been kind of scared because everybody gets so sick and i was curious like is that something where you have some kind of remedy whatever the kind of bacteria that our body's not used to that they they have over there would be like i could take that before and let my body respond so that i wouldn't have to maybe necessarily be so sick if I, when I got there, if I did that yeah. first, oh, that's, cool! That's,
2: that's like one of the things that I I love in my practice. I pride myself on is is sending people to other countries, and they're like the only ones that don't get sick. So yeah, like, and, and so yeah. so that would be a, a reason we use nozodes, right in HP and homeoprophylaxis Have people do HP like a month or three weeks out before the trip to get mm-hmm. themselves inoculated, you know, yeah. for the with them. Train people how to use like the top 10 remedies for first aid and GI stuff. But yeah, I went to India for my 50th and I did not get sick. Oh. <laughs> amazing
1: yeah the whole idea of you know traveling and then being really sick for just like oh that doesn't sound fun yeah. i'm just gonna stay home yeah. but i don't really want i want to actually go that you know oh that's cool yeah. and the other thing too that because that like i said i had that home homeopathic um session and it was like maybe a decade ago and then i was like wondering because i still had the remedy in in my kitchen cabinet and i, I kind of searched it today like oh how long are, and it said like you know if you if you keep it like out of the sun and you know in in so forth um, that it could last for like centuries or you know if, totally. you, if you
2: yeah, it should be completely fine as long as it wasn't left in your like you know eight hundred degree car so <laughs> if, it, if they can't be left in super hot conditions um and they can't be extra billion times Other than that if it's just sit, been sitting in your house, it's totally fine.
1: Yeah. Yeah. which, Which is also really cool. When you think about, like you said, if there's like certain common ones that you have for the cold or cough or whatever, that to think that you could like have them for a long time is nice.
2: Absolutely. And I, and I didn't bring it. I brought my home kit. So here at my office, I have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of remedies. And then I, you know, to my patients, I drop ship from the directly from the pharmacy, but I own my own personal home kit. And it's really cool. It's only about this big and it's in an x-ray proof bag. You unzip it and it has 50 of the top remedies in it. And I mean, that, that, that for 15 years and I've taken it all over the plant and I've treated pretty much everything think of with that kit, myself, my kids, uh, it's incredible. And it costs like $170. So think about how much value you get from oh, that. Oh, wow. You know? Yeah. So I train people how to use this kit. How do you own a prescribing book? Everybody should have a prescribing book, look Mm. stuff up, you know, start to practice. That's, that's why it's such a cool medicine. You can really, really excel and be such a great prescriber um, and just save your thousand because you know how to treat stuff yourself. You know, I think it's going to be important moving forward in the world. You know, if we think about the world, you know, I, I like to think about the world one and two generations ahead. Like, what are we giving to our children, the world, people that are like our children, our community and the ability, the ability to heal ourselves and the ability to have the tools and the knowledge to do that is just one of the greatest gifts, not to mention homeopathy really gives you an an incredible awareness of your body. What am I feeling? What am I actually feeling in my body right now? Not just, oh gosh, I have a headache. Like what's actually happening here? And, and like Tim was saying, and then what's the missing thing that's going on with me too? Gosh, I feel anxious or I feel, or I feel like scared that I'm going to die or, you know, it all, you know, so see the awareness that it trains us to have for our body and giving that to children is really incredible. When that you, when you see kids that have been raised on homeopathy, they're so aware of
1: their bodies. They're mm, so aware. Yeah. yeah. Do you it's teach? Really so do you teach people just one-on-one or do you teach like a a class that that people can attend I need
2: to do more classes that's I finally have a a partner who can help me with that Mm -hmm. because I've just been a solo practitioner for so long you know um but yeah I I, I'm going to start teaching more because I think it's just at this point even more valuable
0: Well, that is a really good place to end because we're out of time. And I really wanted to get more into the dreams aspect. I wanted to ask you more about that because that sounds really interesting too. But, you know, we'll have to have you back on so you can maybe talk about that and some other things. But yeah, can you please tell our listeners where they can locate you online or if they want to get in touch with you or find out more about your services?
2: Yeah, my name is Lizzie Martinez and my website is lizziemartinez.com. Yeah, they can find out all about my practice there on my website. I'm about to start collaborating with a group of homeopaths and do some classes. I'm also going to do some of my own classes where I uh, that should be coming up in September, where I'm going to just do some Zoom Zoom educational classes specifically for a lot of some of the stuff that we just talked about today, like which remedies to use, how to use them,
0: which you know for symptoms, etc. Well, thank you so much for coming on and taking the time to talk with us.
1: Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was
0: great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond the Illusion. I'd like to say thank you very much to Lizzie Martinez for taking the time to talk with us and for sharing her gifts and knowledge with us. If you'd like to learn more about Lizzie and the services she offers, you can go to her website, lizziemartinez.com and Lizzie is spelled L-I-Z-Z-I-E. Before we go, I'd like to thank Tiana Roser for all the work she does to keep this podcast running smoothly and to Casey Henson for providing the music. And lastly, if you're enjoying this podcast, remember to subscribe and please leave a rating for us. This is what helps other people find us. Thank you and take care.